Um, I have a, a question. It's, it's time for honesty. How many of you have ever been Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve? Okay. All right. Lots of people. Way more than the previous two services. Okay. See, what does that tell us about coming in late? Okay. <laughs> I never have, I have to confess. But my son Joshua did a few years ago. We have three boys. And uh, it was the year we started Secret Santa. And uh, we pulled names out of a hat, and we were just supposed to be, it was a $15 limit, the idea being that we were just supposed to be creative and come up with something that, that was personalized for whoever it was we pulled out of the hat. Well, Christmas was approaching, and we get to Christmas Eve, and there are only four presents under the tree. And uh, we know that Joshua has not done one, because it, there's no present saying, from Joshua to, you know, question mark. And so it's like, okay, who's going to be disappointed tomorrow morning? Well, Carol and I went to bed, <coughs> and... It, Joshua's two brothers, two older brothers, forced him into telling them who he had pulled from the hat for Secret Santa. And they were just both hoping that it wasn't them. And, uh, and so they, they, he tells them, and then they say, you have to go and get something. So they force him. I, I think they went with him. Because the only place that's open Christmas Eve is Walgreens. So he goes out to Walgreens <laughs> on Christmas Eve and, uh, and picks up um, a present. Hey, guess what I woke up to for my Secret Santa? On Christmas morning, it, uh, it was a kind of a two-foot sponge uh, foam, SpongeBob SquarePants, pulled over a box. And then it had 10-inch barbecue, wooden barbecue sticks, stuck in the head all over. And he tied a little candy to each of the sticks. It looked like something from A Nightmare Before Christmas. But <laughs> it was this, this really weird. And then, you know, once I'd pulled all the sticks out and taken the candies off and pulled SpongeBob off, there was a snowman uh, cookie jar in the box. But that was a very memorable Christmas. We have never let Joshua live that one down. And uh, as much as Secret Santa has produced some very interesting and meaningful presents, that wasn't one of them. But it was certainly memorable. Anyway, that's, uh, that's one of our family traditions. We carried out another family tradition last weekend when Carol and I, on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, went out. And we used to go with the boys and cut down a tree. Um, we just go pick one up now. We don't we bother cutting it. Um, but we go out and we pick up a tree and go through the hassle of trying to get it balanced in those crazy stands. You'd think with the technology you can have these days, they'd come up with a stand that could hold a Christmas tree upright. But <clears throat> we put the lights on and, it's, and, and, and we know that Jeffrey's Christmas is coming. It's on its way. Christmas um, is, on, is on its way. Those are two of the things that we do, um, among others, to prepare for Christmas. So here's a question for you. Just yell out some of the things that you do to prepare for Christmas. We decorate. Decorate inside and out, yes. Something over here? Cookies, right? We bake, make cookies and special desserts. And of course, in England, we make fruitcake, but you don't do that here because that's a joke. But um, anything else? Christmas cards. We send cards to one another, don't we? Yep. Movies. Christmas movies. Christmas TV. Yep. Going to, to going to movies on Christmas Day. I never heard of that until I came to this country, but we've done it. So there you go. <laughs> um, lots of different things that we do. You know, we decorate the you know the inside and the outside of the house, and and the cookies and the baking and the gifts and and so forth. Well, hold those thoughts because I want to circle back to the things that we do to prepare for Christmas in a little while. Now, in the same way as we have uh, family traditions at Christmas, the church has traditions as well. 
most notably the singing of carols. I mean, we've been listening to Christmas music in stores, I think, since September. Um, singing of carols, and then the reading of, of obscure scriptures from uh, the least-thumbed section of our Bibles, the prophets. Uh, they don't get much airtime in the life of the church. I mean, when was the last time you heard anybody quote uh, Obadiah or Nahum or Zephaniah? Although, to his credit, Luke did quote Habakkuk last week, so he's off the hook as far as this church is concerned. But normally, we don't talk about the prophets a great deal in church. But at Christmas, we butt that trend because Hosea gets a mention, and he's quoted uh, by the angel in Joseph's dream. Uh, Jeremiah gets a look in because of Rachel weeping for her children when Herod kills the innocents. And Isaiah is quoted a couple of times. He writes of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, whose name will be Emmanuel. And he's also uh, famous for those wonderful words, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then there's another prophet, Micah. And Micah gave us, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now Micah actually prophesied during uh, the reign of three different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he was around for quite a long time. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah was in the northern kingdom, and uh, he was in the south. <clears throat> Excuse me. But... Uh, we don't have everything that he said, and what we do have is not considered to be in any, any official chronological order. But what comes through uh, over and over, the recurring theme, if you like, in his book is the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And how much more relevant could that be for the season of Advent um, than now? So, but when my, Micah says the Lord is coming, if you read the prophecy, he actually uh, refers to three different comings, three different um, arrivals at three different times and for three different reasons. The first coming that's woven into his message is the Lord coming in judgment for the sins of the nation. And that happened in 586 BC when the Babylonian Empire invaded and destroyed the southern kingdom. So coming in judgment. The second coming that is mentioned is coming as deliverer. And he talks about a ruler whose origins are from the distant past uh, and who will be born in Bethlehem. And that's, of course, the coming of Christ, coming of Jesus. And then the third coming is the coming as king to establish his reign of peace. These are words often associated with Isaiah, but Micah uses them too. He says, when nations will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and they will practice war no more. We are obviously not there yet. But those three different comings are part of his message that uh, he, uh, he passed on to the, to the people of his day. Now, to what extent he knew that he was talking about three different time periods, I have no idea. But the important thing, the primary thing that Micah had no problem understanding, the thing that he was trying to drive into the thick heads and the stubborn hearts of the people that he was addressing, was if the Lord is coming, and he is, do not be found among the unready. Do not be found among the unready. Well, what does that mean? Well, it was that that got me thinking, and it caused me to wonder, in what ways do we see people in Scripture not being ready for the arrival of, of God? 
to show up, not just the birth of Christ, but whenever God appeared, you know, nobody seems to be ready. They're always completely caught off guard, and it's like a side swipe, and, and they fumble around because even if they think they're ready, they appear not to be. So, and then, of course, the follow-on from that is, uh, does their unreadiness teach us anything about, uh, that we should learn from as we prepare for the coming of the Lord? So I want to look at just a few examples of people in Scripture who were not ready when God appears to them. I want to start with Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges. You'll find his story in Judges 6 and 7. And when we are introduced to Gideon, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I don't know if you know what threshing wheat means, but it means that uh, you put your grain down on a, a nice round, kind of flat, windy hilltop somewhere, and you beat it with sticks to knock the grain off of the stalks, and then with a, a, a fork you throw it in the air so the wind can blow off all the husks and all the dirt and dust, and, the, and then the grain falls back down, and then you can pick it up and take it home and make yourself some flour and so forth. Well, that's what threshing is. Well, he was threshing grain in a wine press, right? A wine press, by definition, is somewhat small and contained because you're pressing grapes and you're pressing things in. And so maybe he had a very small fork and he was just and he was just throwing up little bits of grain trying to thresh his wheat. But he was threshing wheat in a wine press because he was afraid that the Midianites were going to come and take his food. So he was doing it secretly, really. That's why he was doing it. But the, uh, he's doing this and it says, the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, sometimes in Scripture when an angel appears, it is just an angel, but sometimes it is the Lord himself. It's called a theophany, where the, uh, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ and the context lets you know, and this one uh, makes it very clear, and you'll see why in just a moment. But so, so God himself appears to Gideon, and his opening words are, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's like, what? Mighty warrior? Because he's, he's in hiding, threshing his grain in a wine press. Gideon says, well, if the Lord is with us, why, has all, why is all this happening to us? Where are his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? No. Now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hands of the Midianites. And God says to him, this is how we know this is God and not an angel. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? Well, no offense, Lord, says Gideon, you know, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest. I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites. Well, Gideon kind of hesitates. And, and then he asks for a sign. Okay, how do I really know that this is, you know, God speaking to me here? And then while he's uh, perhaps giving time for the, for the, uh, the angel of the Lord to, uh, to come up with a sign, he says, can you just wait here a minute? I'll be right back. And he rushes off. Because he's going to go and make an offering. Just because if this is God, I want to make an offering. And, you know, he doesn't go get cold cuts or some chili or something. He goes and kills a goat. All right? Goes home, kills a goat, carves it up, cooks the goat, makes goat stew. And then while he's doing that, he also bakes some bread. I don't know, does he have to ground the fly? He, he must have been gone for hours preparing his meal. And, uh, and once he's got it all ready, he, he goes back, and to his great relief, the, the angel is still there. And uh, he arrives, and uh, he says to him, uh, take the meat, this is the angel, says, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on that rock and pour out the broth 
And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And then the angel disappears. And you wonder what's going through Gideon's head at this point. He's like, well, that was a waste of time. I, I killed my goat and I baked this bread and he just, he's just gone. He didn't even eat it. And now he's disappeared. But you'd think, well, that would be an amazing sign because I just watched somebody, you know, spring fire from a rock and he disappeared. But it wasn't enough for Gideon. Unfortunately, he's, he's, like, he's still con- unconvinced. So he's like, well, God, if this really was you, I, I need some more signs. And so it involves a fleece and the morning dew and he lays out a fleece with, you know, and uh, it has to be wet and the ground dry, and then God does that. He's like, okay, let's try that one more time. Let's, this time, the fleece can be, uh, can be dry and the ground can be wet. And, and so God does that. And finally, reluctantly, he agrees to do what God asks him to do. Was he ready when God showed up in his world? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He just running all over the place like a nincompoop trying to make meals and, and just, it's like, what, were you, what are you doing, Gideon? That's the first example. Example number two, Saul, first king of Israel, a man who had humble beginnings, but who allowed his position to go to his head. Sometimes you put a hat on somebody, a uniform, and it just goes completely to their head. Uh, I don't know what kind of uniform he had, but he got a crown, and uh, it messed with him. Because after being made king, God tells Saul to go and attack and destroy the Amalekites for their wickedness, including all their livestock. And so he sets off, and then he does whatever he wants. And uh, because he does that, God speaks to Samuel, the prophet, and sends Samuel to go and, and see Saul. Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, you'll find this. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. And there he has set up a monument in his own honor. What a wonderful thing. Saul just is like, I'm so great. I'm going to set up a monument to myself over here. Uh, so he set up a monument in his own honor, and he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel finally catches up with him, Saul says to him as he sees him coming, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel's like, really? Then why can I hear the bleating of sheep and the lowing of cattle? And Saul's like, well, the the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to to sacrifice to the Lord your God. That's why they did it. That's why they're here. Uh, But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, says Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But I did obey the Lord, says Saul. I went on the mission, and the Lord assigned me, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites and just brought back their king, Agag. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from their plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, Saul thought he was somebody. He thought, hey, I'm God's man. He's happy with me. He put me in this position. Everything's hunky-dory. And so I can just now pretty much do whatever I want to do. I am fully awesome. I'm building monuments to myself. That's how awesome I am. And uh, he thought things were going great, but they weren't. He thought he was ready 
to continue to, and to meet with God, and he wasn't. Example three, let's go to the New Testament. We find this in Matthew 17, familiar words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared before them, talking with Jesus. So here we have Jesus' inner circle, his, his three disciples that he selected out occasionally and took with him to, to special places. And they go up on the mountain, and they've been with Jesus now for just over two years. They were hand-selected to be people who were to be a, a witness to who he was and the works that he did. And these are the special three out of the 12. And uh, just a short time earlier, Peter had been, uh, his eyes had been opened, and when asked, who is this man? He said, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had a head understanding of, I've seen enough miracles, I get now who this person is. But he was not ready for a revelation of that truth. Because though he said that, once he saw Jesus glowing like the sun and white as light, he just, he completely loses it. He starts bumbling and mumbling about, oh, and, he, and then Moses and Elijah are there. He says, let's build some shelters. It's like, Peter, really? That's your response? You're this, this mind-boggling thing that you're seeing, and you're like, oh, let's build shelters. You know, I don't know what you know, James and John were doing. They were just like, okay, we'll, just let, we'll, get, we'll let Peter get on with this. Because building shelters for dead men for, to begin with, you know, how long does he think they're going to be up on the mountain? You know, building shelters. What's he going to build it with? There are, no, there are no trees on mountaintops. They're barren. And so is he going to start piling rocks up? And, you know, he's, he's, just, you know, he's just making stuff up as he goes along. He, he hasn't got a clue because he, he isn't ready for what he sees, the arrival of this, the glory of God beginning to be revealed, he's just you know, clueless. Lastly, another well-known story, Mary and Martha in Luke 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary. We meet these several times in Scripture. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Jesus just looks at her. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one, only one. Martha gets a bad rap for being the busybody in this story. But I want you to imagine for a moment, if you have to close your eyes and just picture it, but I want you to imagine that as you leave the church today, Jesus meets you in the hallway and says, oh, I'm coming over for lunch, all right? And you're like, coming over for lunch. I mean, he's, there he is. Maybe nobody else can see him, but you get to see him, and you're trying to get the kids together and get to the car, and it's snowing, and, and he said, I'm going to follow you home, okay? On the car drive home, What's going through your head as to what you have to prepare for Jesus to come over for lunch, all right? Well, you know, that's, that's Martha, all right? Jesus is coming to town. She's opened her home, but uh, she's thinking, you know, there are dirty dishes in the sink. I didn't get time to dust, and, and the house smells like last night dinner, and, and it's like, no, oh, no, there's so much to do. 
and she's panicking. And I think we would panic because once you've had him for lunch, what are you going to do with him this afternoon? You know? What are we doing? What do we do now? Should we play a game? What, do we watch the Packers? I mean, can't go for a walk now. I could have suggested that, but so we, you know, we can understand having guests over creates a degree of work, doesn't it? But she loses herself in all this busyness because when you have somebody over, what you really want is to relax with them. You want to spend time just visiting, telling stories, laughing, getting to know one another, enjoying each other's company. And if you're jumping up and running around and, and uh, just trying to make sure that everything's in place, and, well, then you don't get to do that. Because the only point of having somebody over is to spend time with them. If you invited guests over and just left them sitting in the living room while you went out into the kitchen and spent the next hour doing something, you know, they'd be like, well, this is great. We should come here more often. You know, no, you want to be with these people. But Martha wasn't doing that. She was too distracted by the other things. She's pottering about, worked up over whether there's enough clean sheets and towels. Where's everybody going to sleep? You know, what's in the house to give them for breakfast? I've only had more time to prepare. She wasn't ready. Those are just four examples, four different people, four different situations where God shows up and they're not ready. Comes as a leader to Saul, as a deliverer to Gideon, as a revelation to Peter, and as a friend to Martha. But none of them are ready. They do, however, all have a common response because they either do or they want to start doing something. That's the response. When God appears, okay, I have to do something. I'll build shelters. I'll go cook a meal. Um, I'll just busy with the house. We just start doing things, it seems. So Saul charges off and does whatever he wants. Gideon says, wait there to God. He says, wait there, God, I'll be back. Peter starts a you know, building project, and Martha spends the whole time playing house instead of engaging with her guest. What does being unready for the Lord's coming look like? I give you Saul, Gideon, Peter, and Martha. And that's just four. I could have picked any of dozens and dozens from Scripture because this just happens over and over again. In fact, the whole Bible reads like the Chronicles of the Unready. Because whenever God appears, they're never quite together. Apart from that, I can only think of two instances. One would be Daniel, who is completely unfazed, it seems, whenever God shows up in his world, which is amazing. And the other is Mary. Mary, who is a little bit rattled, but keeps her cool. But virtually everybody else, you know, the first words out of any angel's mouth, fear not, because they're terrified right away. And uh, when God shows up, they're not ready. So let me circle back to what I asked earlier about how we prepare for Christmas. Virtually every response that we can think of involves doing something, doesn't it? Buying things, cooking things, setting things up, hanging lights, sending cards, cutting trees, decorating, shopping, wrapping. It's all just this activity. All of which is good. Let me say up front, there. There's nothing wrong with doing any of those things. They're wonderful. In fact, in the world filled with so much misery and grime, to have a few weeks in the year when we, we, we put lights uh, inside and outside the house and it's, it looks festive and, and it's colorful and bright and cheerful. It's what a wonderful thing. It, so it's, it's not that those things are bad at all. I don't want to in any way try and disparage them. But doing all those things only prepares us for Christmas. 
I would suggest it does not prepare us for the coming of the Son of God. I think there is a difference. All right? So I think we need to do both. It's not, well, I shouldn't do any of those Christmassy things. That's just, that's awful. I should be spiritual and just focus on the, no, no. If this is an event worth celebrating, let's decorate our homes. Let's put some lights up and, uh, and sing some special carols. But at the same time, while we prepare for Christmas, are we preparing, are we readying ourselves for the coming of the Son of God? Those two things, I think, need to happen together. All of us, I think, and I'm as guilty as the next man, could have our names written in the Chronicles of the Unready. Because along with Saul and Gideon and Peter and Martha, we have convinced ourselves that preparing for the coming of the Lord means doing things like it did for them. Whether that's scheduling and planning, arranging, assembling, displaying, you know, that's what we do. We enter a frenzied explosion of activity. But if that does not prepare us for the coming of Christ, well, then it begs the question, then what does? What does? What would? What will prepare us? Well, the answer to that question is going to be unwrapped. This is a mini-series Christmas, uh, unwrapping Christmas. It's going to be unwrapped by Josh and Luke in the next couple of weeks to a greater extent. But for those, just those four characters alone, what would it have meant for them to prepare? Well, you know, for Gideon... He could have been a little bit more trusting, a little more accepting that this is God who's communicating. He could have, um, he could have yielded himself to what God was saying. Saul just needed to humble himself and recognize, no, 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 God's in control. This is not about me. And Peter, well, Peter just needed to uh, be present. You know, with, this is who am I with here? You know, concentrate on who he's with rather than what he could do in the light of what he's seeing. And then. You know, Martha is really the same too. She needs, you know, she should do what Mary's doing, who is just sitting and listening. You know, trying to absorb the guest that they have in their house. We like to do things, and that, I think, is the heart of our problem. Um, maybe preparing ourselves has more to do with being than doing and not getting caught up just with the activity. As they say, activity is great, but it's not just that. So you're going to be unpacking this a little bit more in the next couple of weeks, but I want to wrap up this morning by reading you an extract from a message given by Reed Shushart, the Associate Professor of Communication at Wheaton College, that he gave to the students in chapel at Wheaton in March 2009. He titled his message, God Does Not Post to YouTube, because he's, you know, he's really addressing the idea that we just get wrapped up so much in the activities around us that we miss the God we're seeking to serve and meet. And so in his message, he began by dismissing the students. You're free to go. But before you leave, he said, um, I'd like to talk to you about the weird habit you have of preemptively leaving the building before you've entered it. I'm talking about the me mentally checking out just as you physically settle in. We do that in church sometimes too. We, do, we physically settle in and we mentally check out. Right? He's saying, I want you to do the reverse of that. I'm talking about being over-mediated and consequently disembodied. I wish to speak to you about the incompatibility between the incarnate church and discarnate man. 
In other words, instead of being physically present but mentally absent, I want you to consider yourselves physically absent because he's dismissed them so that you can be mentally present. In public speaking, he said, this is called an attention grabber. Here's the problem. When everything competes for your attention, nothing actually has the power to grab it. And when anything does grab your attention, it grabs it, by my rough estimate, in 15 to 20 second bursts. And at maximum, three minutes, roughly the length of a video, of a music video. If you are, like the average American, spending 12 of your 16 waking hours engaged in some form of electronic mass media, you are habituating your psyche to have certain needs. You might identify with Calvin and Hobbes in the Hobbes cartoon when he says, I think life should be more like TV. I think all of life's problems ought to be solved in 30 minutes with simple homilies, don't you? I think weight and oral hygiene ought to be our biggest concerns. I think we should have powerful, high-paying jobs and everyone should drive fancy sports cars. All our desires should be instantly gratified. Women should always wear tight clothes and men should carry powerful handguns. Life overall should be more glamorous and thrill-packed and, and filled with applause, don't you think? Under conditions of a 12-hour day mass media, we've literally fulfilled the letter of the law of Deuteronomy 11, but with the wrong medium. Fix these images of media in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them as logos on all your clothing. Show them to your children, texting about them when you sit at home and when you multitask along the road and when you lie down with a sleeping pill, and when you get up with double espresso, never turn them off. Two weeks ago, the British neuroscientist Susan Greenfield warned in the Daily Mail that social networking sites like Facebook, Twitter, and Bebo are said to shorten attention spans, encourage instant gratification, and make young people more self-centered. Took a neuroscientist to figure that out. <laughs> Look at the evolution of the attention span and its twin, instant gratification. A book takes about 10 hours to read. A movie, about two hours to watch. A TV show takes about one hour. A video game, about half an hour. A Facebook update, only a few minutes. And a Twitter tweet is measured in seconds. I believe these over-mediated conditions are a primary causal factor for how it becomes harder and harder for people to actually discern, let alone confirm, God's will for their lives. We live in an age now that says a picture never lies and that seeing is believing. This is the opposite of faith. This is proof. Faith, you recall, is the evidence of things not seen, and that means they are things that are heard. You remember that God speaks in one, the still small voice, but the Old Testament meteorological descriptions may not work anymore because weather no longer makes an impression when it has its own TV channel. It just entertains us. So if I may, let's consider that while God works in mysterious ways and does speak through the tongues of men and women, he has never so far in recorded history, spoken directly through an electronic medium. People throughout history have heard God's voice, sometimes audibly. They've never, to my knowledge, received an email or a text or an apparition of his face on their television because God does not post to YouTube. If he did, 1 Kings 19 would read much differently. And the Lord said, go out and stand in a Wi-Fi hotspot in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful electronic media revolution tore down all previous pre-electronic media forms, shattered their business models. But the Lord was not in the media revolution. And after the internet, there was the cell phone, but the Lord was not in the cell phone. And after the cell phone came the BlackBerry, but the Lord was not in the BlackBerry. And after the BlackBerry's batteries died and the recharger was lost, there came a gentle whisper, and the whisper said, 
Can you hear me now? <laughs> or consider that all our presence is now based on technology of absence. The Greek word for distance is tele. So telegraph is distant writing. Telephone is distant speaking. Television is distant seeing. Telefusion, which is what I call the internet, is distant togetherness. There you are, all alone on Facebook with your 243 friends, alone at your computer. In all these communications, you are in your body, and yet you're also out of your body, somewhere between sender and sent. In my own life, I've tried to minimize electronic noise so that I can better hear the unplugged God. Also helps me hear the voice of my wife and my children. To my media students, I may seem like a Luddite or a technophobe, but there is a great difference between a lifestyle and a life, and Christ wants to offer us life, and life more fully. It is a great testament to your spiritual maturity, a maturity that I did not have at your age, that you're wondering about God's specific will for your lives. You're asking real questions. Should I pursue this relationship? Should I go to graduate school? Who should I marry? These are things I believe God actually cares about, but the problem is we want the specifics tailor-made to our immediate situation without really understanding the general principles that are true for all humanity. The universal truth is that God has made known his will to us. He wants us to be human. He wants us to be incarnate. He wants us to be his creatures. He wants us to imitate him, giving the gift of real presence, real words, in real time, and with real actions, small acts of service done with great love to an increasingly discarnate age. And here's the clincher for me. Only in the context of a deeply embodied life can we begin to hear the Spirit speak to us about the specifics of our lives. You must do this daily, quietly, with fear and trembling and with great hope. And you must do it in person. You must do it in person. And that is what I hope we will pursue as we approach the celebration of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Yes, let's get involved in preparing for Christmas, but at the same time, let's prepare for the coming of the King. And as I said, Josh and Luke are going to unwrap that a little bit more as to what do we do, how do we do that in, in a world that just wants to completely distract us with the activity. That's our challenge but it's also a wonderful goal to set for ourselves over the next few weeks. So please pray with me as we ask God's help to do just that. Lord Jesus, we are, we are a people cut from the same cloth as the people we read about in your word. We like to think somehow that we would be different, that we would respond differently well, uh, if we'd been on that mountain, we certainly would have made ridiculous comments about building b shelters like Peter. And if we had been Saul, we would never have let that power go to our head. And, and if uh, Jesus had come to our house, yes, we would have been like Mary. But the truth is, um, the majority of us, perhaps all of us, would not. Because we are so quickly wrapped up. We want to do things. We want to get it right. We want to make sure that somehow... Uh, the activity will please you, make you happy. But what makes you happy is engaging with your children. 
And so I pray that for myself and for my family and for every person here, that over the next couple of weeks, as we uh, anticipate the, uh, the coming of Christmas Day, that the day that's been selected to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, may we, uh, may we enjoy the festivities and the cookies and the food and, and the, the presents. May that all be a, a wonderful part of our celebration. But may we, alongside that, engage with the one whose birth has made all the difference in the world, whose birth has changed the world, and the one who longs to come to, into our own hearts and make himself at home. Help us to prepare for his arrival in that way. We ask it for his sake. Amen. God bless you. Safe driving as you go home. Have a wonderful week. Look forward to seeing you again.